For the believer, there is such a thing as the right time and the right place. Sometimes you can reflect on your life and you could say, I was in the right place at the right time and that's why this happened. And sometimes we look at our lives, maybe when you're a little bit older, you, you can kind of look at different dots in your life and you can start connecting the dots, especially when you look back and you can see God's hand, but it's hard to see God's hand before something happens. It's easier to look back and see providence after the fact. We've all, most of you have read the book of Esther and you know how the story ends. You know she's brave and you know that God does his thing. But for Esther, she didn't know <laughs> the end of the story. And that's the hard part about walking by faith. That's the hard part about being brave is that we don't know, always know the end of the story. We hear about things like God's sovereignty and God's providence and and these can be theological realities for us, but when they hit real life, that's really where the test comes. Are we will, willing to walk out what we say we believe theologically? So the word providence is the word provide with N-C-E at the end, providence. You can see by the word, it has, it's a Latin word that has pro at the beginning. So pro can, if you're uh, pro something, you're in favor of it. So Pro is the idea of being in favor of or on behalf. Vide or vide in the last part of provide is a Latin word that means to see. So if you put it together, the idea is to see or uh, to be on behalf of and to see. Or the way that uh, one author put it is this way. He said in English, we might say, I'll see to that. Providence is God saying, I'll see to that. I'll make sure it happens. If you want a simple way to remember providence, just think about God guiding and providing. That's providence. God guides and he provides. But as we've mentioned in the book of Esther, God's name is not mentioned once in the book. And by the way, even though this chapter has implicit in it, implied in it, the idea of prayer, not once is the word prayer used. Not once is the word pray used. Not once is the word prayed used. Even though fasting is going to come up and mourning and weeping and, and sackcloth and ashes, the word prayer is not used once. So Esther is a book, I think, for contemporary people in a contemporary culture to understand that there's real-life situations when we don't always have a prophet walk up to us and say, thus says the Lord, here's what you should do. We don't always have some sort of lightning bolt or angel or donkey that speaks to us on the road or whatever it may be, right? Sometimes the, the signs of life are not as obvious. Sometimes we can piece them together when we look back at providence, but we don't always see them when we're faced with a big situation. And the big situations can be a lot of things in life. Uh, this is from John Piper, and he's talking about this idea of providence, and he says, Theologically, there is a reason why seeing to means providing for. Remember the story of Abraham sacrificing Isaac, his son. Before they went up the mountain, Isaac said to his father, Where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Genesis 22, 7. Abraham answered, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And when God sh uh, had shown Abraham a ram caught in the thorns, Genesis 22:14 says, Abraham called the name of the place the Lord will provide. Whenever it says provide, he goes on to say, in Genesis 22, the Hebrew word is 
see. Very simply, Abraham said to Isaac, God will see for himself the lamb. And in verse 14, the Lord will see. Why does God seeing in Hebrew mean that he will provide? He goes on, he says, I think the deepest answer is that God never simply sees without acting. He is God. He is not a passive participant in a world that exists without his sustaining it. Wherever God is looking, God is acting. If God perceives, he performs. If he inspects, he affects. In other words, there is a profound theological reason why providence does not merely mean foreknowledge, but rather the active sustenance and governance of the universe. When God sees, he sees too. His seeing is always with a view to doing. Where he patrols, he controls, close quote. That's a good way to think about providence, and it doesn't always make sense to me from my side of the equation, I have to admit, because I cannot always see God uh, guiding and providing. I have questions about God's will just like you do. But a sensitivity to the Holy Spirit is where it starts. An openness just to say, Lord, if you're a guiding God, then would you guide me? <laughs> would you get, guide me in the paths of righteousness for your namesake? Will you show me how to walk? Will you show me how to listen? Will you show me how to be sensitive to when I'm in a situation and someone just simply needs your love or a smile or a prayer? This is us saying, this is us responding to providence, amen? This is us saying, okay, if you are a guiding God, then I want to listen to where you would guide me. But you and I have to be open to that. You and I have to be praying about that. You and I have to say, I'm going to turn down some of the noise so that I can actually hear your voice and walk where you want me to walk and do what you want me to do and be brave when you've called me to be brave. Now, in chapter 4, verse 1, it says, When Mordecai learned all that had been done, and all that had been done is recorded in the last three verses of the previous chapter. Let's take a peek so we can set the stage again. It says, Then the king's scribes, 312, were summoned on the 13th day of the first month. I've mentioned to you that's the day before Passover. And it, it was written just as Haman commanded to the king's satraps, to the governors who were over each province, to the princes of each people, each province according to its script, each people according to its language, being written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. And the question we asked was, their fate sealed? Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all the Jews, both young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. So 11 months after the decree was, was given, this would be carried out and to seize their possessions as plunder. The edict went out with the king's seal. All Jews were to be annihilated. A copy of the edict, 14, uh, to be issued as law in every province was published to all the peoples so that they should be ready for this day. The couriers went out impelled by the king's command while the decree was issued in Susa, the capital. And while the king and Haman sat down to drink, the city of Susa was in confusion. Now the camera pans to Mordecai, one of our heroes in the story who, story, who learns all that had been done. What he had learned was just what we read. He had learned that 
Haman had hatched this plot. Horrible Haman had gone to the king and somehow he had gotten the king to give his signet ring and to put his official seal on an edict that all the Jews should die. And of course, we know that behind the story, we've been, we've been reading the, the backstory, and we know that Mordecai is Jewish, and we know that Esther is Jewish. But we know because of anti-Semitism on the rise, or whatever all the reasons are, the two of them, encouraged by her adoptive father or her older cousin Mordecai, Esther has not revealed her Jewishness. She has not made known that she is a Jewish woman. And Mordecai has been refusing to bow to Haman, and Haman's history is that he is an Agagite. Everybody remember Agagite? And an Agagite goes back to the Amalekites. And there was a king named Agag, and Saul refused to kill him. And even though he was killed, the Agagites still survived. And down through the ages, there was a man who decided that he was going to settle an ancient feud, and his name was Haman. And perhaps somehow he had found out about Mordecai's ancestry or the fact that he was Jewish. And when Mordecai heard this evil plan to kill and destroy all the people, you can imagine somebody first hearing about this in Nazi Germany in, in the not-so-distant past. He tore his clothes, he put on sackcloth, did Mordecai, and ashes, and he went out into the midst of the city and wailed loudly and bitterly. Mordecai's response pictures his mourning and deep distress. He's doing things on the outside to try to picture how he feels on the inside. Camel's hair here um, to put on sackcloth was probably camel's hair, and it's coarse. And sometimes when you're going through difficulty emotionally, you feel a coarseness inside. It feels rough, it feels unsettled, and the, the camel's hair became a picture of how he felt on the inside, wearing it on the outside. Um, you can also see ashes. Ashes come from a fire, right? That which is burned. So I'm sure he felt burned, uh, burned by uh, Haman burned by emotional pain. Sometimes we feel burned by people and he tore his clothes. And another way to picture how you feel on the inside is you can feel torn up. These are all pictures of emotional pain. And in many uh, instances in scripture, there are stories of those who tore their clothes. For example, in Numbers 14.6, when the people said, we want to go back to Egypt, Joshua and Caleb tore their clothes. David, in uh, 2 Samuel 1.11, tore his clothes when he, heard, when he learned of Abner's death. When he learned of the death of Amnon in 13.31, he tore his clothes. Uh, and when Jerusalem was being threatened by the Assyrians and word came to Hezekiah, uh, there were two that came to him, I believe, here, and they tore their clothes when they heard the military leader of the Assyrians saying, we're going to take your town. And even one commentator says the Persians in Susa would have recognized the significance of Mordecai's behavior for they too tore their clothes in grief when they were defeated by the Greeks at the Battle of uh, Salamis, close quote. And so this was kind of an ancient way to uh, express uh, that you were wounded and in pain and in grief and in mourning. And it apparently spilled over to other cultures, including the Persian culture. And so Mordecai's in the middle of the street. And imagine how Mordecai feels because he knows that Haman has done what he's done because Mordecai refused to bow to Haman. And so somewhere deep in his soul, he has to feel some personal responsibility, something like this. I couldn't imagine that it would ever come to this. 
Have you ever been in a situation where you have a personal issue with somebody? Maybe, you know, there's some unsettled dispute, and all of a sudden it spills over into all these areas, and you, th- you think to yourself, I had no idea this was going to be the ripple effect of this situation. Now, nowhere in the text is Mordecai blamed for not bowing. I think he did it for his own reasons, probably because he knew who Haman was. He knew he was an Agagite. He knew uh, that, you know, he was a twisted, evil man, whatever his reasons were. But now, can you imagine being Mordecai and thinking to yourself, are you kidding me? They, they have issued a decree that all Jews die? Talk about what seems to be an overreaction, but we know there's something deeper working. And what's deeper that's working is an ancient feud and an ancient enemy named Satan, who goes about as a roaring lion seeking someone to... Do you believe that? He goes about seeking someone to literally drink you down. In fact, Jesus said to Peter that Satan's been demanding permission to sift you as wheat, Peter but I have prayed for you. Do you know that was right before Peter denied the Lord three times? Is that Jesus said to him, I'm warning you, Peter, this is real. And then he says, when you've turned again, strengthen your brethren. You're going to fall, but you're going to recover. I'm going to restore you. Some of you have fallen to the lion. You have been devoured in some way. You have been chewed on, and sometimes you feel like you've been spit out. But be of good cheer. Because there's a chance to be restored. There's a chance to start again. That's what happened for Peter. And it can happen for all of us. And so he went as far, Mordecai did, as the king's gate, verse 2, chapter 4. For no one was to enter the king's gate, this is the Persian king, clothed in sackcloth. This may just be a matter of etiquette. Or that they didn't want any mourners going in there. Or the king was somehow isolated. But... He could only go as far as the king's gate. And from this gate, he had previously uh, had some communication that he, had, he was able to get to Esther through the staff, through the Persian staff. He was able to check on her welfare, and he was able to get messages to her about the plot that the two guys came up with to try to kill the king. So he was able to communicate, but it seems like he had to do it through other people. And so he did this from this area right outside the king's gate, right outside the the royal court. You can check out chapter 2, verse 11, and chapter 2, verse 22. And in each and every province where the command and decree of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews, you can imagine why, with fasting, weeping, and wailing, and many lay on sackcloth and ashes. In every province, everywhere, where this decree had gone out into all the 127 provinces by the couriers, and it had been posted and delivered and talked about. Everywhere you looked in the street in the provinces, there were Jews laying on sackcloth in ashes, wailing, weeping, because they felt like their, their fate was sealed. There was a, an official decree from the king. They thought it was over. And so all they could do was cry out to God. They put on sackcloth. They put on ashes. But the word prayer is conspicuous by its absence. It doesn't say they prayed. I believe that it's implied that they prayed. I don't know how they couldn't have prayed, but it doesn't say that they prayed. And I suppose it's possible, just for a moment, to talk about the fact that we can go through the outward without having the reality. 
We can put on the right clothing, the right dress, show up at the right places. We can look spiritual, but maybe we fail to do the essential thing, which is to pray. And by the way, you don't have to do all that stuff to pray. You can pray without ceasing. You can be in constant communication with God. There are special times when you may feel like you need to fast, when you may feel like there's a more intense time to pray over a matter. But here, you can see that everybody's in anguish. Everybody's uh, crying out sackcloth and ashes. Even in Jonah chapter 3, the Ninevites knew how to do this, to put on sackcloth and ashes and to cry out to God. They knew how to repent. Then Esther's maidens, four, and her eunuchs, she's the queen, remember, uh, came and told her. And the queen writhed in great anguish. Now, to this point, I don't think the queen really knows what's going on. And remember, nobody would be quick to tell her because they didn't know that she was Jewish. And so she, in some way, may have been shielded or removed from these kinds of communications. But eventually, the word came to her. And notice the queen's response. She began to writhe in great anguish. I read an author this week who was talking about Christians who have kind of stepped back in their Christian commitment. They're cut off from fellowship. They don't uh, spend a whole lot of time in Bible study. They don't go to church much. And so they're a little bit ignorant of the plight of Christians around the world or prayer needs of others in a fellowship because they're simply disconnected because their world has become uh, separate from the body of Christ. And the Bible teaches us that we are part of the body of Christ. And the hand can't say to the foot, I don't need you. Uh, The eye can't say to the ear or to the nose or to the mouth, I have no need of you. But somehow we can, in the modern uh, way that we walk out our faith, it's easy to disconnect. It's easy, I don't want to hear that. I don't want to hear that. I don't want to hear about persecuted Christians in the Middle East. I don't want to hear about that. Because sometimes we can feel overwhelmed by the needs just in our own congregation, amen? How many of you are on the prayer chain for the church? Just raise up your hand right now. Okay, so you know what it's like, right? Uh, It just seems like every day there's another need, another person who's sick, another person who's struggling. And it can seem overwhelming until you know Something important to remember, you are not running the universe. (laughs) He is. It's a good thing to remember. I had a pastor that I would see regularly in the gym, and sometimes we talk about pastor kind of things, and he he would say to me, Pastor Michael, one thing I, I always try to remember is, it's not my church. It's not my church. And I know people say, oh, that's Pastor so-and-so's church, and that's Pastor so-and-so's church. No, it's really not. It's Jesus' church. (laughs) He's the good shepherd. I'm an under-shepherd under the chief shepherd, amen? And so uh, if I can remember that his shoulders are much bigger than mine, maybe I I can not bear unnecessary burdens. I can trust him even with all the prayer needs. But Esther was writhing in great anguish, the, the language could mean she was shocked, appalled, and she sent garments, notice, to clothe Mordecai that he might remove his sackcloth from him, but he did not accept them. He refused to take the garments of mourning off. Why do you think that Esther offered him a garment that would re- reflect normal dress? Well, there's all kinds of uh, conjecture. Some commentators say, Maybe it was because she was a little bit embarrassed, or maybe it was because she 
you know, somehow wanted to cover it up or whatever. That's simply conjecture. I don't think that's the case. I think you could answer it this way. Maybe it was for him to, to take off the garment of mourning and have access directly to her. So maybe it was just simply she wanted to give him some normal clothing so he could come in and have a face-to-face conversation. That's possible. We don't have to live and die with it. But, but he refused it. He would not take off the garments of mourning. He would not put on normal garments. It was not a normal time. Jeremiah 31.15 says these words. This is what the Lord says. A voice is heard in Ramah, mourning and great weeping. Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because her children are no more. Jeremiah 31, 15. Many of you who are Bible students know that that very verse is quoted by Matthew in Matthew chapter 2 after Herod kills the babies in Bethlehem two years and under. And that verse is quoted there by Matthew where Rachel, representing Israel, says, I I will not receive your comfort right now. All I can do is cry. All I can do is mourn. I'm not going to act like life is normal right now because I'm mourning. And the Bible says there is a time for mourning and there's a time for dancing, right? There's a time to, to weep and a time to laugh. And, and there's, it's hard sometimes to know, you know, what does that look like? And is there a, a deadline for these kinds of things? Look, there's no perfect science to these kinds of things. But Israel, when someone died like Moses or Aaron, they mourned for 30 days and they kind of stopped everything and they went into a, a period of mourning. And, and so many times I think in American culture, we feel like people should just move on. <laughs> it's not that easy. And so we just have to give each other grace in those situations. I want to show you, uh, as you hold your place in Esther, something in Isaiah 61. This is something that Jesus quoted. Turn over to your right, Isaiah 61. If you don't want to turn there, just listen to it. It's a beautiful prophecy that Jesus reads a portion of as he's in the synagogue. And uh, that's recorded in Luke 4. But here, let's look at Isaiah 61. And I want to show you something it says about the Messiah that he'll do for people. King Jesus. It says these words. Isaiah 61, 1. The spirit of the sovereign Lord, reading from the NIV, is on me. Because, 61.1, the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them, notice, a crown of beauty instead of ashes the oil of gladness instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. Isn't that beautiful? What Jesus wants to give us, instead of the garments of mourning, the crown uh, of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, a garment of praise instead of a spirit of of despair. But the Lord knows that we need help. Back to the book of Esther. He knows how to speak that word in due season that can bring us hope. He is the God of hope. And there's a lot of hopeless situations in our world, or a lot of hopeless moments. I, I mentioned in our prayer 
uh, tonight that a pastor in the L.A. area has committed suicide. Can I tell you, I think over this last weekend, can I tell you in 20 years of pastoral ministry, I cannot remember one time hearing of a pastor who committed suicide. And now I've heard of two pastors committing suicide in the last about three months. Uh, the previous one here in Chino, right, in the next town. And I have to ask the question, what's going on? And, and, and I think it's simply this. I, I think, yes, life can feel like it caves in on us. Yes, uh, life can get heavy. Sometimes we feel like there's no way out, but Jesus is the way of escape. He's the way to deal with these issues. We, we've got to look to him and look, sometimes there are wider issues, right? We, we need help on many levels oftentimes, but, but if you're hurting, you got to tell somebody. You, you got to be vulnerable and say, look, I'm on the edge here and I'm going to do something stupid and it's okay if you're feeling that way. It'd be better to share it with somebody than not to share it and continue to combust on the inside and do something tragic. And so back in Esther 3, or I'm sorry, 4 verse 5, Esther summoned a man named Hafak from the king's eunuchs whom the king, Esther 4, 5, 5, appointed to attend her and ordered him to go to Mordecai. So Esther uh, gets him to go to Mordecai out in the streets. Mordecai can't come in. He goes out to learn what this was and why it was. Now, I think that, uh, this is my own personal opinion, I think Esther knows what's going on but she's looking for the particulars. Have you ever been in a situation where you hear something and you're like, what? And why? And I think she wants to understand more of what's going on. What's happened and why? What is going on? And so Hathak went out to Mordecai to the city square in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him all that had happened to him the exact amount of money that Haman had promised to pay to the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews, verse 8. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict, which had been issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show Esther and inform her, and to order her to go into the king to implore his favor and to plead with him for her people. And Hathak came back and related Mordecai's words. To Esther. Can you imagine? Esther was already writhing in anguish. Now she gets more detail. She's, as we would say, caught up to speed. And maybe Hathak said, you're going to have to sit down for this one. Because I got a lot to tell you. This all started when your cousin, your adoptive father, wouldn't bow to Haman. And Haman got and more and more angry every day. And he went into the king and he hatched this plot. And he convinced the king. And now there's an edict and it's gone everywhere. And here's a copy of it. Can you imagine? She's sitting there at a table reading the edict, edict going, Are you? No, no. Sealed with the signet ring of the king. And so... The last words repeated through this eunuch is that you must go to the king. You must go, Esther, and you must beg him for the life of your people. And Esther may have taken a gulp right there and thought, he doesn't even know I'm Jewish. I've been hiding it. Now I am called to step forward. My adoptive father, I'm supposed to honor my mother and my father. 
has challenged me. In fact, the language has ordered me to go to the king and plead for the people. Esther's life, we have to admit, has been one of at least some compromise. She's in a pagan court. She's obviously the queen, and we could say God's hand on, is on that, but she's had to compromise many of her values, I'm sure, to be there and live the way that she has had to live. And so she sends a reply back to Mordecai. This servant is kind of like the middleman, and now he takes the message, and he's got to walk it out. And here's the message. Esther spoke to Hathak and ordered him to reply to Mordecai. All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that for any man or woman who comes to the king to the inner court, you know this, she might say to Mordecai, who is not summoned. If we come to that court and we have not been summoned, he has but one law, and that he or she be put to death. Unless the king holds out to him, and we could add her, the golden scepter so that he may live, and I have not been summoned, to come to the king for these 30 days. It's been a month since he's even asked me to come and see him. You might say, well, how is that possible? She's the queen. Remember, he has a huge harem, and she's been married to him for over five years now. And they say in marriage, if you can make it past seven years, you're, you're doing well, right? Have you guys heard those statistics? I'm not sure if they're all true or whatever, but anyway. But we know how... Uh, it's possible, given this man's loose morals and unrighteous sexual ethics, it's possible that when he added to his harem year after year that a new girl had caught his fancy. That maybe his desire for Esther had cooled. Uh, this is the reality of the Persian court. He had all these women at his beck and call, and he could call upon them when he wanted to. And she says in the uh, communication back to Mordecai, he hasn't called on me in a month. I haven't seen him in a month. And you could read between the lines, Esther's kind of saying something like this, I don't even know if he likes me anymore. I don't even know what my standing is with him. And I entered into this uh, particular position because the one before me, Vashti, wouldn't make him a turkey sandwich. That's, that's veggie tales. That's not the actual. But she wouldn't come. And, and who knows what happened to her now? I don't know if you guys have been watching the uh, Leah Remini series. She's doing an expose on Scientology. And the wife of the leader of Scientology, what's his name again? Uh, David Miscavige. Um, his wife has not been seen publicly, I think, for, what is it, seven or more years? Nobody's seen her. She's like MIA. Missing in action. And some of the people believe that she knows so much that David Miscavige has her locked away somewhere with guards under lock and key, lest she expose the true nature of Scientology. And let me just say to you, the true nature of Scientology is that it is a diabolical, nasty, terrible religion. And I put religion in quotes duping and ripping off hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people, devastating their lives. And what they have to do is they have to try to hide and move things around and, and do what they do. Well, she says, he hasn't even called on me in 30 days. And, you know, Esther's human. And she has to be thinking, maybe, you know, if I walk in there unsummoned, 
Maybe for the king it would be easier that he doesn't extend the royal scepter. He just says, I'm done with her anyway. And I, and I could die. You know, Satan said of man, skin for skin, all that a man has will he give in exchange for his life. And Satan said to God, if you remove the hedge from Job, he'll curse you to, to your face, right? Now, Satan didn't really know Job, right? Because Job still worshiped the Lord. But there is this human tendency, our first reaction to big problems is the road of least resistance. Can I get a witness? Let's see, what's the easiest way to deal with this? And sometimes it's easier to sweep stuff under the carpet or, or just say, I don't want to deal with that or I don't want to go there. I certainly don't want to risk myself before the boss. I don't want to put my job on the line. I, I don't want to risk this or that. For these people over there, whatever happens over there, that's their problem, right? I mean, we can have all these justifications why we stay out of it. But you know that James 4.17 says, To him who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, you know the rest. To him, to her, it's sin. There is a sin of omission. It's to omit what you know is right because it's easier not to do what's right. And we would all confess, if the line came up here tonight, we could all confess the number of times that we omitted the right thing to do. Even feeling like a nudge from the Spirit and we didn't, we didn't do it. Today I was driving in my car and there was a man, I was on Border Avenue, I was driving up to my house. It was late morning today, and there was a man walking down the middle of the street like this. He looked so angry, and he was literally in the middle of my lane, and he wasn't moving. It was almost like he was saying, we're going to play chicken right now, me and you. And he, and I'm in a car. I got metal around me. But I tell you what, he looked angry and borderline satanic. And my first reaction See if I can get a witness for this one. It was something like this. I mouth these words. Are you going to get out of the road? <laughs> you say, Pastor Michael, no. Yes, it's true. I am human, especially human when I'm driving. I didn't have any worship music on. I don't know what happened to me. But here's this guy. <laughs> and so, oops, there goes my water bottle. So I said, I mouth the words. I was hoping he could understand. He could Read my lips, no new taxes. No, never mind, that's from a long time ago. Anyway, read my lips. Are you going to move? And I did one of these. Now, in my old days, this would be a moment to fight. This is a moment when you exit your vehicle and you're like, all right, let me tell you something. You won't take my lane? We'll talk about it. <laughs> but, you know, I'm a pastor, and uh, it's usually a, Heals most of my fleshly thoughts. Anyway, so I did end up going around him, and <laughs> I just went up to my house, and as I passed him, I felt like the Holy Spirit said to me, what are you doing? Pray for him. I, I was so, I, I went back to my Italian machismo days where it's my lane, and you ain't going to mess with my lane, and nobody's going to get ahead of me when I'm out driving because this is a race. I don't know if you knew this. This is a race, 
and we used to take our kids on a trip, you'd look to the back seat and you'd say, there is no more bathroom. That white car is not going to beat me to Arizona. <laughs> uh-huh. See, I see the ladies looking at the men because the ladies are going, why do you do, you do that? Yes, it's a male deficiency. <laughs> pray for us. Anyway. So I, I just prayed for him. I can't tell you, I got out of my car and said, what's wrong? Can I help you with something? It didn't seem like the appropriate time maybe to do that. But I did, I did feel convicted, like, what's going on in this guy's life that he'd be walking down the middle of the street wanting to take on a car? Like, really? And so the Lord's working on my heart to, to try to see past. It's not, it's not about you. Well, Esther could have had all of her excuses, right? He hasn't called on me. My life's on the line. What if he doesn't hold out the scepter? Genesis 49.10 says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Psalm 45.6 says, A scepter of up uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom, O God. But Esther could have done something like this. You know, it's been five, five and a half years. And maybe I'm in the wrong place at the wrong time. You know, I, I, I've heard some talk about providence, but in reality, maybe I'm in the wrong place at the wrong time. Maybe I'm not the guy, I'm not the girl. You know, we know stories of Moses and Gideon and others who said, Lord, you have the wrong person. It's not me. And I'm sure Esther, and we could all relate to this, probably said something like this. What am I doing here? He hasn't wanted to see me in a month. <clears throat> I'm in a Persian court, and now my adoptive father, my older cousin Mordecai, wants me to go to this king and risk my life? No way. That's my flesh, right? Whenever a big challenge comes our way, what can I do? Maybe I've lost favor. I might die. I can't. I can't. I can't. But you can do how many things? All things through Christ who strengthens you. Esther's first reaction is natural. We tend to take the path of least resistance, which requires the lowest level of commitment to address problems. One writer says, Complex problems are seldom solved by a quick and easy answer, however appealing it might seem. And Mordecai will not let Esther avoid the problem here with a simple answer. Another writer says, in a time of crisis, for all our orthodox theology, our own first response is frequently the whimper of resignation or human strategy rather than robust faith in God. We believe in God, but in practice we react to life's crises as if we are virtual atheists. Close quote. These are challenging truths, but there they are. And so they related Esther's words to Mordecai, verse 12. And then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther these words. Middle of 13. Do not imagine that you in the king's palace can escape any more than all the Jews. 
If you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. I think simply he's saying, I believe in God's covenant promises to Israel, and I believe he'll find another way. And you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not attained royalty for such a time as this. You see, Esther was saying, I'm in the wrong place at the wrong time. And older cousin Mordecai, adoptive father, was saying, no, sweetie, you're right where you need to be. Amen? But my temptation is often to say, could you get somebody else? There's, there's other people around here, isn't there? There's other Christians in this neighborhood, in this country, in this church, in this company, in this city, in this town, in this zip code. <laughs> Why me? You know who I am. You know my frailties. You know my inadequacies, inabilities. Let me just print them out for you again, God. You, I know you know everything, but you know, I'll just put them before you again. Prone to, prone to, prone to, prone to, prone. <laughs> and in a very Jewish way, Mordecai says, who knows? <laughs> now, that wouldn't comfort me a whole lot. I mean, if Mordecai said something like this, you have been put in this spot for such a time as this, no doubt, take it to the bank, sister. That would be one thing. But he, he adds a, who knows? <laughs> what do you mean, who knows? I'd like somebody to know, do you know? Who knows? <laughs> who knows what the weather will be like tomorrow? Who knows? I hope somebody, God knows. We often say that, God knows. But I don't know. Maybe you've come into royalty for such a time as this. Do you think when Esther heard that, she kind of did one of these contemplative moments where you, you start weighing, you know, the negative and positive side of the ledgers. Let's see what God's done. Let's, uh, let's, let's check. My, yeah, that, that did happen. Boy, that was surprising. Yeah, he did pick me and there was hundreds of girls and yeah, I, I, I do sense that he's got me, but, but, <laughs> go down the other side of the ledger, this, and then this, and this, and it just depends on who you want to listen to, right? Your fears or your faith. It comes down to who do you really believe in? Who's your God? Who do you trust? And Mordecai says, Esther, Maybe you're God's vehicle for just this time. Now, Esther still had something to do, and we're going to get to that, but that's not for tonight. But we're not going to get to the full way that she responded. But here's what we need to see. Even though providence is God guiding and providing, and if you're standing before a door, there's still something he asks of you. And for those of you who think these theological trails through, this is the sovereignty of God and the free will of man. <laughs> and uh, where they intersect is not always easy to answer. But God has put her in this spot, and here's the question. Could she say no? Well, 
Mordecai said, if you say no, then God will find another way. But who knows? I want to show you one more cross-reference. It's the book of Joel. So you've got to go way to your right. Book of Joel. So in the Minor Prophets, towards the end of the Old Testament. And if you don't want to turn there, just listen to it. This is a connection that has some interesting uh, things to say to this whole thing about mourning and fasting and who knows. This is uh, Joel 2.12. Joel 2.12. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, weeping, and mourning. Joel 2.13. Rend your heart and not your garments. Now return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, and relenting of evil. And then the Bible says, Joel 2.14, who knows? whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, even a grain offering and a libation for the Lord your God. Blow a trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, proclaim a solemn assembly. Back to Esther and we'll finish it. Who knows if he might leave a blessing behind? Who knows if he might do something that would shock you? But here's, here's the deal. Faith has to work in uncertainty. We walk by faith and not by sight. We wouldn't call it faith if you could see every point. We call it faith because sometimes you have to step when you don't know exactly how it's all going to go. and You have to trust God. And faith is trust. Now, she's not going to take a step of faith without calling for a fast and implied in that is prayer and preparation and all of that. And I think there... That's certainly there. But she is going to take it nonetheless. In the book of Acts, when Paul was in Corinth, the Lord appeared to him in the night. Paul was afraid, and he said to him, Don't be afraid any longer, Paul, but go on speaking. Don't be silent. For I am with you, and no man will attack you in order to harm you. I have many people in this city. And Paul settled there three years and six months, teaching the word of God among them. That's Acts 18 9 through 11, just when Paul was concerned about his life and he had many reasons to be concerned, Jesus said, don't be afraid anymore. Go on speaking. Don't be silent. I don't know if you're here tonight and there's something going on in your life where you feel like you've been hushed. Fear has closed your mouth. And you're praying through it right now. And maybe you're even fasting and you're asking the Lord, how do I respond? What do I do? What do I say? I think the Lord would say, seek me, and I'll give you what you need. And so Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, after Mordecai says, maybe you've come into the kingdom for such a time as this. She says, 16, go and assemble all the Jews who are found in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. We were in Israel the first time in 2006, and we happened to be there during the Feast of Purim. Purim is the feast that's celebrated from the book of Esther. There's a young man from New York that was standing there at the Wailing Wall. Me and my friend were a little apprehensive. We wanted to make sure that we, you know, we were respectful. And so we said to this young man who had been fasting, part of the Esther fast, he said, we said to him, hey, can we approach the wall? What do we need to do? And he goes, anybody who comes here in peace may approach the wall. And he was from New York visiting during the Feast of Purim. But get this. How many of you have said, okay, 
I'm going to fast over something. I'm going to fast. And maybe, maybe it's like, I'm going to fast electronics, or I'm going to fast my breakfast, or I'm going to fast chocolate, or I'm going to make a big sacrifice, and, and I'm not going to eat this one thing, ice cream. for I'll, I'll do that for three days. I won't have my ice cream after my dinner. Oh, that, that's big. We know. But can you imagine a fast where you don't eat or drink anything for three days? If you've ever tried to fast before, the first day is the hardest because everything in your flesh is crying out, What are you doing? <laughs> your flesh says, This is not the deal that we've made. You do this first thing in the morning, then you eat that, then you drink this. You have your cup of coffee. You have a little bit of the half and half with a little bit of the, you know, the sugary, the, the foo-foo. And, and now... We aren't cooperating. There's a failure to communicate. And everything in your flesh cries out. This is an extreme fast. This is a serious fast. Because it's a serious moment. And so she says, fast for me. You can fast for other people. It's not always about your own life. She says, please fast for me. You could ask other people to pray and fast for you. They got to be good friends, though. <laughs> what do you mean fast for you? <laughs> I and my maidens also will fast in the same way, and thus I will go to the king. She musters up the courage. Okay. <laughs> you ever been there before? You work through the whole thing. Okay. <laughs> yes. This is the right thing. Okay. <laughs> I'm going <laughs> to do it. Cowardly lion at the witch's castle. I just have one thing to ask of you fellows. What's that? Talk me out of it. <laughs> That's sometimes how we feel. But we say, and then when you say, okay, I'm going to do it, maybe you commit to it. All right, you asked me to do the, okay, I'll be there. It's, 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 it's in my calendar. Good, okay, yeah, good. Oh, no, what have I done? Maybe I'll call and say, I'm sick. I'm under the weather. I have a hangnail. I, I, I can't be there. <laughs> Wait a minute, I've been fasting. Wait a minute, I've been praying. Wait a minute, I'm convinced that God's called me. And she says, I'm going to go. I'm going to the king, which is a not according to the law. And then notice, end of 16, and if I perish, I perish. She's decided that if she's martyred, there's a very real possibility. I'm willing. I'm going to say yes to what I see as God's guiding hand. One writer says, we only recognize the working of providence by looking back. But we have to commit ourselves to God's providence and our lives to going forward. You can't look back on something providential unless you go forward and rock, walk through the doors even if they have some barbed wire on them. And so Mordecai went away and he did just as Esther had commanded him. First he was giving orders, now she's giving spiritual orders to him and he goes out and he's going to begin to tell the people to fast for Esther. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. 
He chose rather to endure the ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Moses considered the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking toward the reward. Fast for me, she says. This was Esther's defining moment. You ever had a defining moment? You didn't think you could do it. Everything in you wanted to say no, and you did it by faith, and it has now built your courage for the next time. That's what God does. He says, you trust me, and I will show up when you need me, and next time you face the same thing, you'll be a little bit stronger. You'll trust me a little bit more. One writer says, as L. Riken points out, Esther is the only person in the story with two names. Her Hebrew name is Hadassah, her Persian name is Esther. He, Riken, reads this as an indication of the identity crisis that she's caught between two worlds. And she's faced with this. Being raised a Jew, she is thrust into the king's court where she must live as a pagan. Here, we are invited to ask a question about our faith. Where do we truly stand? Are we living in, we are living in two conflicting worlds that are ready to collide, but who do we trust? Have you identified yourself so much with Christ that there's no doubt when you hit the fork in the road, when you are in that crisis situation, when two worlds are colliding, when you have to say, yes, I am a Christian and I'm not ashamed of the gospel, that you've already decided who you are. And sometimes you do have to decide in the moment. And I want to leave you with this. This is a story of a mediator. Esther is in the palace for such a time as this, and she's going to approach the king unsummoned with a decree of death hanging behind her. And we have a better mediator. We have a better advocate. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And when we sin, and we will sin, here's what we know. We have an advocate with the Father. The golden scepter of God Almighty will be extended to us because the Son has mediated on our behalf. He is better than Esther. He is better than all the Old Testament uh, saints put together because Jesus Christ mediates for me and for you. There's one God and one mediator between God and man. That is the man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom. Jesus said, if I perish, I perish. And Jesus knew he would perish. Jesus Christ laid down his life going before us, you know, before the scepter, if you will, before the decree of death. He paid the ransom price in full so that when you go into the palace of God Almighty, the scepter will be extended to you and you will be without the law, without death, because Jesus Christ paid your fine. That's the gospel. The good news that we proclaim is our king is our mediator. And he said, Father, I will perish for the joy set before me. I will endure the cross. I will despise the shame and I will sit down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Father, thank you so much for Jesus Christ, our great advocate, our mediator, the God-man. Thank you for his love, hope we have in him. Thank you that he took that walk down the Via Della Rosa toward Calvary, knowing that he would perish, saying, if I perish, I perish. And he knew. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son 
that whoever believes in him will not perish. They will have everlasting life. Thank you that the just one died for the unjust, for me, for us. Thank you that Jesus, the righteous one, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the scepter that will not depart from Judah, laid down his rights, took the decree of death. We've all sinned. We all fall short of your glory. The wages of our sin is death, but Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords, has paid the ransom price in full. We can now approach the King of heaven because we are forgiven, set free from the decree of death, set free from Satan and all of his lies, given hope, not only for this life, but for the life to come. And that hope is the anchor of our souls.